This is a special edition of Macro Voices with hedge fund manager Eric Townsend, the premier financial podcast targeting professional finance, high net worth individuals, family offices, and other sophisticated investors. Now, for this special edition of Macro Voices, here's hedge fund manager Eric Townsend. Macro Voices Hot Topics Episode 12 was recorded on Sunday. April 5th, 2020. I'm Eric Townsend. This episode of Macro Voices is dedicated to the true heroes of the coronavirus crisis, our healthcare workers around the world. Please join us in supporting them during these difficult times. We've got a really special episode planned for you today, folks. Two special guests on deck. The first one is petroleum geologist Art Berman, who is very well known to Macro Voices regulars. We've also got Professor Nate Hagens. Nate's perspective is in a very different time frame. He does a lot of excellent research work on the really big picture interactions between energy, the economy, and society in its general direction. And his perspective is going to be very illuminating in terms of the longer term picture of where we're headed after the coronavirus crisis. We're going to start the discussion today with oil markets right here, right now. The situation is that there was a whole bunch of of buildup toward the end of last week about a meeting of OPEC Plus on Monday, which was set to hopefully orchestrate a big production cut at the behest of President Trump. That, over the course of the weekend, has all come unraveled with a lot of strong rhetoric between Saudi Arabia and Russia blaming one another for the oil price crash. The meeting that was planned for Monday is now on hold until at least Thursday. That date still is tentative as we're recording on Sunday afternoon, April 5th could be very interesting to see how this plays out. So we're going to start today's podcast with a lot of perspective from both Art and Nate, primarily Art, on where we stand right now in the market, what's coming next in the next days and weeks. Then we're going to transition the conversation into the longer term picture of whether we really just V-shape recover from the coronavirus crisis and everything's back to normal in a few months, or if we're going to take a different economic path forward as a result of the long-term impacts of this crisis, maybe changing the landscape of the market. So I think you're going to find this to be a really exciting episode. It's going to run longer than most of our hot topics. It's about an hour and 20 minutes long, but I think you'll find it's a long one, but a good one. So without further ado, let's go ahead and meet today's special guests. Joining me now are petroleum geologist Art Berman. And of course, folks, it wouldn't be an Art Berman podcast without an Art Berman slide deck. So be sure to download the slide deck as we're going to be referring to the graphs and charts extensively through our discussion. You'll find the download link in the description of today's podcast on our homepage at macrovoices.com next to Art's picture. I also want to introduce for the first time Professor Nate Hagens, who is the director of energyinourfuture.org. He's also a fellow in the Post Carbon Institute and an adjunct professor at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, very, very fascinating guy, and I'm really looking forward to introducing Nate to our audience. At the end of this uh, podcast, I'll tell you where you can watch a video that really gives you a much broader, longer-term perspective on where energy fits in 
into the economy and society. But I'd like to start, Art, with your slide deck. Please give us the introduction in pictures. Uh, and again, listeners, please download the slide deck from the website at macrovoices.com and follow along with us. Art, tell us how you see the current situation in the oil markets as we are uh, recording this on April 5th. How do you see the market now? Where do you think we're headed? Sure, Eric. Slide number two is is a good a good summary slide. It is a guess, as all guesses are, about where supply and demand are, but it's 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 probably close. And and what it says is that all of the discussion about President Trump and Saudi Arabia and Russia cutting production by 10 million, 15 million barrels, whatever, is largely irrelevant. That this, this slide shows supply in green, demand in orange, and the balance between supply and demand, this is global, in blue for positive and red for negative. And what it says is, yep, we've got an absolutely historic level of excess supply, almost 10 million barrels in the second quarter, but that because of low price and because of lack of demand, the great likelihood is that Producers are going to cut, not because they want to, but because they have to. And if if Russia, the United States, Saudi Arabia, other people in OPEC Plus choose to get involved, so much the better, but the, the market will probably take care of this by itself. Slide number three shows, this is uh, Brent 12-month spreads versus Brent price, which is in black. Uh, the spreads are in the color fill. Whenever we have a, a crisis of some sort, whether it's oil or otherwise, all of the the august sages and pundits said, no one could have ever seen this coming. And I think that's just preposterous. This chart shows the 2008 world financial collapse. It shows the 2014 oil price collapse and the recent oil price collapse with COVID-19. And just looking at the, the three arrows on there, the futures market saw all three of these things coming many, many months before everybody said, oh my gosh, what's going on? So the notion that these things are uh, black swans, uh, you know, we can argue about the, the details, but the markets get this stuff and sees it ahead of time. Slide number four, this is one of my comparative inventory slides, which is Eric will tell you uh, there's plenty of documentation on the macrovoices.com website. All I'm showing here is the oversupply in green and uh, undersupply when it exists in orange next to WTI price. This is U.S. supply. And, and I believe very strongly that the current price fully incorporates the anticipated fill in storage. And, you know, again, markets are reasonably savvy and okay this is a kind of an extraordinary situation we sort of know how long we think the economy is going to shut down be shut down we know how much oil is being produced every day what the storage is people can sort of calculate out and so i think the reason that prices fell so quickly and so low is because they've already priced in the the storage build slide number five shows again why the the Trump intervention is largely irrelevant and here I'm showing Brent futures Brent spot and LLS which is light Louisiana sweet which is the 
kind of the U.S. proxy for Brent in mixing for, for crack spreads. And, and what this shows is that before President Trump got involved in this thing, prices had already bottomed, at least for now. That doesn't mean they won't go lower again, but LLS reached a, a breathtaking 585 on March 30th. And what you can see is that the next day, futures reached their bottom, Brent spot reached its bottom, and they were already on their way towards some, albeit uh, weak recovery before Trump at all got involved. And then slide six, everybody's saying storage tanks are overflowing. That, that, that's a bunch of crap. <laughs> they, they may eventually overflow, but no storage tanks are overflowing at the moment. In fact, U.S. storage had the first fill of any significance just this past week. It's been going into increasing deficit for most of this coronavirus. There's a lag, so I'm, I'm not trying to minimize that. It's just the tanks aren't overflowing today. And what I've done here in slide six, I'm just showing U.S. total crude oil stocks, and I'm showing what the, what the storage capacity is, and I'm saying, look, Everybody said we were going to overfill storage in 2014 through 16. Didn't get close. Everybody's saying it's going to happen now. I've just modeled in with the black arrow some very high rate of fill and to say that, well, if it happens, it cannot physically happen faster than the pump rates are, you know, are, are capable of. And so we probably are not going to fill storage for, for many months to come. The final uh, slide is just to show, look, I mean, this is, this is crazy. I mean, nobody knows what the, the demand deficit is right now, but it's probably going to grow to something close to 20 million barrels a day by the, by the second quarter. It should decrease going forward, assuming that this economic shutdown continues. So that's kind of a, a brief magical mystery tour of, of the current oil situation, Eric. Thanks for that, Art. I'd like to now add my own summary of the last few days' uh, important news events. What's happened is President Trump kind of shocked everybody on April 1st with a tweet saying that he's talked to Mohammed bin Salman. There's going to be a 10 million barrel cut between Russia and Saudi Arabia. The way it was presented, it sounded almost like it was a done deal. That shocked oil prices dramatically higher. We were still flirting with the short-term moving averages on WTI around $22, $22.5. All of a sudden, we actually came off of about 21 spot 60 straight up on that Trump tweet to about 27 and change and uh, then came off a little bit and then more news on Friday took us all the way up to $29 on WTI. So that's almost a 40% increase in just a couple of days in the price of WTI. And it's all based on this idea of a 10 million barrel cut in production. And the way I think we need to think about this is to separate it into two separate topics. Number one, is it realistic that a large production cut will be agreed to by major oil producers around the world, which will have a meaningful and relevant impact on supply and demand dynamics in the marketplace? That's question number one. Question number two is independent of reality. Will the oil producers around the world create 
the perception, some propaganda, if you will, about how a big, massive cut is going to change everything for the purpose of jawboning market prices higher, even if there is no relevance. And I think I agree with Art that the likelihood of real supply and demand dynamics being changed by a production cut really is very low. But at the same time, I think there's a very high probability if a production cut is announced, which I think is likely, that it will be effective in hypnotizing market participants to take the price of oil higher, at least temporarily. And I don't know how long that will last. I think we need to examine that. The other thing that's happened just over the course of the weekend is at first the the expectations, the reason we got to a $29 close on WTI on Friday was all about the expectations of a Monday OPEC plus emergency meeting to iron out the details of a cut. That has now been postponed with a lot of strong rhetoric between Saudi Arabia and Russia, both blaming each other for the price collapse and saying it's the other guy's fault. And so now question has come into the mix as to, number one, when that meeting will occur. They're tentatively saying Thursday the 9th, but that's uncertain. And also whether or not it's really likely that they're going to come to a deal based on how much strong rhetoric is going back and forth between Russia and Saudi Arabia. So let's start with question number one, which is, is there really room for a production cut that would meaningfully change the balance of supply and demand? Art, you said before that you thought it was irrelevant. Please elaborate. Why is it irrelevant? Eric, I I think it's irrelevant for many reasons, but uh, the principal reason is that this this dispute that that led to the OPEC plus failure to agree to a cut a few weeks ago, the reality of that has now sunk in on certainly on on Saudi Arabia and its crown prince, and that is that nobody's going to buy the oil that Saudi Arabia plans to supposedly flood the market with. The the market just isn't there, uh, no matter how much they cut. And so to his credit, I, I think that that Trump has has been the opportunist that he is so good at. And uh, he seized on this moment several weeks late in the process to find a way maybe for Mohammed bin Salman and Vladimir Putin to save face. And rather than look like the bad guys that they're painted as, and believe me, they <laughs> I think they are. I don't like Trump any better, but that's my opinion. You know, this is a way for everybody to come out of this looking like good guys. Oh yeah, you know, the world's in trouble and in our, you know, in 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 our magnanimous uh goodwill, we're going to we're going to help you guys out. We're going to cut. The reality is that nobody wants to buy the oil that they plan to produce, so it, it's an empty gesture, but it will, as as you imply there, Eric, it, it will affect prices. And um, I suppose that that's the intent. And so uh, let's take it. Professor Nate Hagens, what's your perspective on this issue? Oh, well, I think we face two almost existential crises right now, the short term next few months, and then, you know, the next five or 10 years. And personally, I don't have the knowledge on the the information on Saudi Arabia and Russia and cuts and things that you do, but 
in my opinion, focusing on the near-term oil price is like choosing which brand of mosquito repellent to put on our arm as a crocodile is biting our leg. We are in a massive economic crisis that's going to have to have credit and governments uniting to support us getting through the next two months. And in the near term, the oil price is that, you know, kind of downstream of these other events. Well, I couldn't agree more with you, Nate, that that's what's more important. But for those of us who do have trades on in the oil market and do care about the price tomorrow. I want to just take this conversation to its logical conclusion first, and then let's come back to that. Art, I want to really touch on the the question of price, because here's how I see it. I'm in agreement with you that no matter what happens, they're going to produce more oil than there are buyers for, and there are going to be price, there's going to be shut-ins that are forced by a lack of demand. And that's going to be extremely painful and extremely difficult, and it's going to force some people out of business. It's going to be a really ugly thing. And I don't think that any cut agreement is going to make any difference in whether that happens or not. However, I think that, there, you know, just go back to 2016. Remember when the famous OPEC plus freeze was announced? You had Saudi Arabia producing at a level which almost every analyst in the industry agreed. They were going balls to the wall. There was nothing that they could do if they tried to increase production because they were maxed out. And they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to agree to a freeze where we agree not to do something that we are incapable of doing, which is to further increase production from here in order to balance the market. And they were able to get about 20 to $25 of price movement to the upside out of playing that propaganda story of the freeze. And of course, they did it with a lot of hype and hoopla and big meetings and, and buildups and press conferences and so forth. It was all a bunch of nonsense as far as I'm concerned, but it worked. It was very effective at jawboating the price higher. Now, what seems to me as an opportunity here, because of the messaging that Saudi Arabia has already used, is they can say, look, we're going to cut from our current production level. That's the fantasy level of, I forget what it is, 12.5, 12.8 million barrels, whatever they said they were going to increase to starting on April 1st. I doubt that they really have increased their production at all. I think they know there's, and they have known, that there's going to be no buyers for that extra oil. But they told the world that they were increasing their production to 12 point something million barrels. So now they can cut 3 million barrels off of that and get back to where they were last month and call it a 3 million barrel cut. Russia, I'm sure, can make up some numbers that sound good to say that they're cutting. In the United States, there have already been forced shut-ins, particularly in areas where there are low grades of crude which sell at substantial discounts at the wellhead, well below the WTI benchmark price. They've already had to shut in because they were at the, the verge of their wellhead prices going negative. You could say that the shut-ins that have already occurred are a cut. The U.S. could say, well, you know, we're going to cut our production from what it was, and that cut finds its substance in shut-ins that have already occurred or that will be occurring in the next few weeks, which were inevitable anyway. If you call that a cut and you add that to Saudi Arabia calling something that's not really a cut a cut, and Russia does the same thing, and you get the other OPEC Plus characters on board, you can very quickly make up a story 
that adds up to 10 million barrels of production cuts to be implemented immediately and have a great big, you know, fancy press conference to announce it with all kinds of fanfare and hoopla. I think that could cause the market to reprice oil dramatically higher, at least temporarily. What do you think? Am I missing anything? Uh, Is there anything about that story that doesn't make sense to you? Eric, everything about that story not only makes sense, but as you alluded to, has substantial precedence. I mean, this is the playbook that, you know, that the, that the price takers always use. And there are some, you know, certainly some exceptions, but look at slide number eight. This is a slide that, that Macro Voices listeners are, are familiar with, so they can get through some of the messiness. But I mean, this is this is my uh, standard weekly comparative inventory versus oil price cross plot, and and what it shows is that what we're going through right now is an extreme but standard price discovery excursion. So all of the the, the red circles represent previous price discovery excursions. And the big one, of course, is uh, summarized in, in the red curve, which is when oil prices dropped from over a hundred barrels, a hundred dollars a barrel to fifty dollars a barrel in a couple of a couple of weeks. So so to your point, whatever the affordability of oil is, and, and Nate will have a lot to, to say about that, and, and whatever the, the perils to the credit system and the whole financial structure are because of the fact that people don't have any money and no employment, those are huge issues that we're going to talk about. But the price of oil today, as of last Wednesday's report at 1944, is something like $30 undervalued. So, People think that when this happens, that the markets have gone berserk and the markets are wrong. No, that's not true. What's happening is the traders are able to find somebody to take the other side of a trade because they think that the sky is falling and the world is coming to an end, not the traders, the people on the other side. And as long as that continues, they're going to continue to make that trade. And at the point that nobody will take the other side of the trade, it goes in the other direction. I'm not saying that oil prices will go back to the $52 mark that it shows on here. I'm just saying that there's a lot of, there's a lot of room to play with getting back closer to the true value of oil. So in a way, I guess, yeah, you're right that, that there's going to be a lot of head faking and uh, theater around. Uh, we're saying we're cutting, but we're really not. But the point is, is that oil prices will need to go higher. And what all the theater will do is it's going gonna, it's gonna to limit the guys who are willing to take the other side of a long bet and, and the price will move back upward. You say dramatically, but you know, if, if something in the neighborhood of $50 is where it ought to be, boy, you know, 35 or 40 looks pretty damn good. Nate Hagens, what's your take? Well, Art mentioned that the the true value of oil is fifty some dollars. I mean, I think there's there's a huge difference between the price of oil, the cost of oil, and the value of oil. The price is what we're seeing at the pump in the futures markets, et cetera, which is just a monetary marker, which is so arbitrary because it's based on pricing at the marginal barrel. The cost is what the 
producers have to pay, which is art would tell you fifty to sixty dollars to to break even, and the value for what it provides society is nearly priceless. And so everyone's focusing on one of those three things without really knowing the broader context. So, yeah, oil is unbelievably valuable to our society, and it's unbelievably dangerous if the price signals we're getting to producers are $30 below what they can break even. And I'm sure you both know that. I'd like to come back to slide two and ask you both to comment on something that has really gotten my attention. Now, Art, I don't know if this yellow demand line is your estimate or someone else's, but something that I've noticed is just about everybody is using the same chart, and it shows this this just V-shape where the bottom of the V is April. And I think the reason that they're choosing April is that most people expect peak infection rate for the coronavirus crisis to occur in April. So the expectation that seems to be very widespread consensus is demand just crashes down, 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 down to April, where we are right now this month. And then because we pass peak infections, somehow miraculously, everything just goes right back to normal. And in six or eight weeks, we've forgotten the whole thing or the market has forgotten the whole thing because demand is back to normal. I don't believe one word of that. And one of the things that, you know, China is supposedly saying they've got their economy pretty much back to normal, back online, everything's up and running again. Gee, that's interesting because if you look at the satellite imagery, they're not polluting anywhere close to half as much as they used to. So one of two things is going on there. Either China is lying about their economy being back online, or there's a newfound commitment to green energy in China, and they're somehow figuring out how to get their economy back online without polluting the way they used to. Uh, I'll leave it to listeners to decide which one of those is more likely. But I don't understand why everybody has this V-shape. It seems to me like what happens is the worst of the crisis is likely to be April and May. That's when we're going to have the shutdown of the economy that causes demand to go way, 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 way down. I don't see why that wouldn't last for several months until we can start to get the economy going. And I think that President Trump's desires to get the economy going quickly are going to fail. I think it's likely that policy errors by the U.S. government will result in a second wave of infections in the United States, and that we'll probably have to go through a second hammer effect of containment before we can get serious about the dance that's needed to get the economy back online. So, What's going on with this V-shape that seems like after April, everything gets better? Do you believe that, Art, or are you just getting this demand line from somebody else? Well, I don't believe anything in this graph, even though I made it myself. But what I've done here, so when I first introduced this graph 10 or 15 minutes ago, I said this is, you know, nobody knows. I mean, there's no data. (laughs) Nobody knows, you know, what demand is at the moment. So I've taken some estimates by what I believe to be semi-reliable sources, and they're listed down below, but particularly uh, VTOL and Trafigura, which are, you know, global oil trading houses. And and so I've I've used, I've heavily weighted some of these. It's my, you know, I made these made this graph and I, I I played with those numbers. So I take responsibility for this graph. I'm just saying don't believe it. But but the point is, first of all, the V isn't in April. The, the, the scale on the x-axis is quarterly. So the, the V is in the second quarter, 
And so that would, you know, have its center in, in May, I guess, which isn't hugely different than what you said, Eric, but it is spread over three months. And I call your attention to the table because if you look at the, the second line of data, demand growth, third quarter demand is, is catastrophic at 7.54 million barrels per day, less than the third quarter of, of the, the previous year. It has a V configuration only because second quarter demand is, is so apocalyptic that anything compared to it looks like a big recovery. And, and, and you look at my fourth quarter, we're still down 4 million barrels a day. I mean, we, we have never seen numbers like this in any of the previous crises. We don't have demand data back in the, in the mid 1980s, but I've, I've estimated that. And it's perhaps. 7 million barrels a day. So what we're looking at now is different. So first of all, no, I don't believe the V, but I don't have any other way to to accommodate it. Secondly, I agree. I don't think that we're out of the woods on the either the coronavirus or the longer term impacts to the credit system, the financial system, people's ability to to pay their bills, much less to think about getting in their cars and, and buying petroleum products. We're starting to get to an area here, which really, I think, is much more up Nate's alley. And I just want to explain to our listeners, you really have to watch this video. I'm going to give you a link to at the end of this episode. You'll find the the link actually on our homepage at macrovoices.com. Nate really thinks about the role of energy in the economy over the long term, big picture stuff. So, Nate, I want to ask you, we see on this graph that Art has given us, demand was kind of tooling along there at 100, 102 million barrels per day. We see this crash to Q2. It it looks like about 82 million if I'm uh, eyeballing that. Then by Q3, we're right back up to almost 95. Do you buy any part of that story? No, I absolutely do not buy that. I think if you, your listeners remember that in January, you were already talking about the impact of the coronavirus on the markets and it took two months for the markets to kind of catch up or at least a month and a half for that to happen. And it's the same sort of thing here. Most vanilla investors are just thinking this is a one or two month thing and then a V recovery. And I think that's absolutely not the case. If current interventions persist until June, GDP for the entire year will be down, our models say, around 10 to 12%. But if we go with these social distancing and and, uh, shelter in place rules into the third quarter, it's going to be 20% drop, which I think is likely given the epidemiology data. And I think you're going to find that some Democratic governor states like California and New York are going to be more conservative, keep things shut down longer. And maybe some Republican states already are are not taking this seriously. And so there's going to be this bifurcated, some states are going to be doing better, others aren't. But basically, the number I just mentioned represents 32% of the private sector's output, assuming that the government share of spending remains the same at 38% of GDP. This has a massive impact on demand. And I think, personally, we're going to have another TARP moment in early May that the government is going to have to do the nuclear option to support all this. And what, what happens to oil prices there? I have no idea. But the government, $2 trillion, ain't going to be enough. It's going to have to be $5 trillion, and it's going to have to come from the government because there's no other entity that can do it. We're going to need to bail out companies, and we're going to need to bail out people because 
the people that have called in for unemployment claims, I talked to someone that tried to do that. They were on hold for six hours. So there's many more millions of people that are going to be calling in and it's going to, that's going to get worse. And of course, on the oil side, who's going to be investing in upstream capacity when oil's $25 a barrel? And so in the United States, this is my biggest worry. And I am an environmentalist. I care deeply about the environment and the future. But what's happening now is you've got the Republicans generally don't want to bail out people. And the Democrats generally don't want to bail out corporations. And there's this big push to let the shale companies go belly up because of carbon or because they don't deserve government bailouts. And that is going to be a disaster if we end up having partisan politics in these bailouts. We need to just have a unified voice. An asteroid just hit our our economy and we need to bail out everything, get through this existential crisis and then deal with the longer term problem, which you guys are aware, if we stop drilling, U.S. shale production drops like 30 to 40 percent a year. I mean, what's that going to mean five or seven years from now? Art Berman, what's your reaction to what Nate just said? And particularly, I'm curious to hear your reaction to Nate's comments about whether or not people are going to want to invest in low prices in in a recovery. Right, Eric. And sure, what Nate just said is is right on. I have to tell you, though, I I was uh, about to give a talk in January 2016, which was at the bottom of the, the last oil price collapse, things were looking awfully bleak then. And before I gave the talk, I looked at my phone and found out that uh, Pioneer and Diamondback had just raised some ungodly uh, $1.52 billion in uh, some kind of uh, secondary share offering or bond offering in a matter of an hour and a half. And I thought, what the heck? I mean, this is crazy. But Looking back on on what happened in 2016, we were at sub-30 oil. We weren't anywhere near, you know, the the U.S. still had a a gross domestic product, which makes it quite different, uh, you know, from what Nate just described, and I agree with him there. But nonetheless, what happened in 2016 was that there's still plenty of money in the world. There is today. Uh, Ordinary people don't have it, but there's lots of money in the world. And investors said, geez, uh, oil only has one direction to go and it's up. And suddenly massive amounts of other people's money went into the oil business, a lot of it into the Permian. Investors were much more selective about which companies and which basins they invested in than before. But untold billions of dollars got put in to these companies long before oil got anywhere close to break even prices. So I'm I'm just saying I'm not saying I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm just saying it happened the last time. So I uh, just want people to keep that in the back of their mind that there are always surprising events that we don't really think about. Yeah, Art, I agree with you. I I mean, you and I have talked about this for a decade. A dollar of oil or a dollar of gas is 
an order of magnitude or higher more value to our economies than a dollar of cupcakes or a dollar of coffee. So as we're making investments into the future, oil and gas are going to be the most critical investments we make. So somehow that will happen, whether it will be government aided or low interest loans or something like that, it will happen. We're going to self-organize around energy. Nate, I want to come back to that conversation and talk about the role of energy in the economy and particularly what it's going to look like for the recovery of this industry after this event is over. But before we go there, some of our listeners are particularly interested in the short-term price outlook for crude oil because they're trading it. So I'm going to share my perspective and Art, I'm going to ask you to critique it. Here's how I see things. First of all, we're recording this on Sunday, April 5th. The market has not yet reopened to allow us to see what the market reaction will be to suddenly the meeting that was supposed to be set for tomorrow has now been postponed. And not only was it postponed, but it was postponed with a lot of strong rhetoric between Saudi Arabia and Russia, which is going to seriously undermine market confidence and them coming to a deal. I expect an abrupt move down in prices over the next day or two, starting at the Sunday open. And uh, the reason for that is a loss of confidence that this deal is going to come together. If I had to guess, I'd say maybe back down to the short-term moving averages around low 23 handle is probably where we get to, if not lower. But frankly, I think it's very likely after that, that they will somehow come together and they will create what I'll call a propaganda deal, one which probably ends up settling on the 10 million barrel number which President Trump proposed. Why? Because that is going to have just a shock and awe effect on investors if they believe that a 10 million barrel production cut has actually been agreed to by all of the principal producers. My guess is the way they'll get to 10 million is by cutting down from fictional numbers that aren't really meaningful and going back to producing the same as they were last month. So it doesn't change anything for supply and demand. But I predict that it will be very effective if they reach that deal could be as early as Thursday. I think that shocks prices higher in the short term, and it's probably a new shorting opportunity because although I don't know if they necessarily go below 20 before this is over, I think they probably come back down towards 20 simply because nothing has really changed. But it will take a while for the propaganda to wear off and for the real world economics to kick back in. That's my take. Art, please critique and and don't be shy if you think I've got it wrong. I want listeners to hear uh, as many different views as we can give them on this. You've got it exactly right, Eric. I, I answered somebody's question on Twitter yesterday, almost precisely the same. They said, what do you think oil is going to open it on Monday? And I said, well, I have no idea, but my my guess is it could easily be 5 or $6 lower. But following on that, there are going to be some some statements and some rumors and by the end of the day, it, uh, it may actually recover or not, but certainly set the, the stage for some sort of partial recovery later in the week. But, but let's, let's talk about the, the mechanics of this for a minute. So a component, a big component of Saudi Arabia's supposed 12 point whatever number is that they've, they've shifted burning crude for electric power to natural gas. I mean, you know, there's a brilliant idea for you. That would have been a good idea five or 10 years ago. But so that, that's a piece of it. 
The other is, is that not surprisingly, you know, Saudi demand for oil is way down too. So they've already shifted the numbers, the, the propaganda you're talking about. They've taken, they've taken oil out of one pocket and put it in the other and say, see, we're at 12 point something million barrels a day when really and truly nothing at all has changed. Another factor to consider is that in Russia, the way their tax structure works is that low oil prices actually favor independent producers, that they they don't have to give nearly as much back to the government in taxes. So that's really good for them, and it really sucks for the government. So you know, the, there, there's a, a big incentive there, not just for you know the, the retail or wholesale price of oil, but for Putin to get a higher price because he needs more more cash from oil companies to, to fund his operations. The United States, I think, is is um, is more problematic. You know, a lot of this discussion about the Texas Railroad Commission, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and reinforcing allowables, prorating production, if you will, shutting in the Gulf of Mexico, you know, they're all good things to discuss over, you know, a beer or in the hot tub at the Esalen Institute or something. But, you know, the reality of any of those things happening is questionable and it's going to take substantial time. And so there really is nothing to talk about. Nobody, nobody at the table in this conversation has a hand to play, if you want to just be very blunt about it. Everything is imaginary. All of these guys and I'm not just talking about the U.S., Saudi Arabia, and Russia, but all the countries of the world are royally screwed right now. <laughs> and, and this oil thing that Trump pulled out of a hat, I mean, this is what he does best. It's, he's created a, a distraction that catches everybody's attention, and it has great potential to artificially lift people's spirits about where this dismal economy may go. And and so that benefits everybody at the table since they got no cards to play. Yeah, Art, I agree this is bad for everyone, but I think it's slightly less bad for Russia because they have various advantages that the rest of the countries don't have. They have massive you know, energy independence now into the future. And because of the US sanctions the last decade, they've become internally reliant on their technology and other things. So this is much worse for Saudi Arabia, USA, and China than it is for Russia. Good point. I agree. Gentlemen, I want to move on now to where we go from here. And uh, let's start with the sort of medium term. I eventually want to get to the the really big picture long term, which Nate focuses on. But let's start with where expectations are. Okay, we're going to get through this coronavirus crisis. Now, I think it's going to take longer than just the first quarter, but the world's going to get through this. Eventually, probably will be a year before there's a vaccine, but we're going to get a vaccine. It's going to get better. The thing is, the U.S. shale industry and the shale revolution miracle, as far as I'm concerned, you know, a lot of people think that was oh, new technology made it possible. They invented this new stuff called fracking and horizontal drilling. Folks, those technologies were both invented, I think, before I was born, more than 50 years ago. What happened is there was this mountain of available credit that made it possible to invest in previously cost prohibitive 
prohibitive technologies and to scale them to make them cost effective because of high oil prices. So we had this situation with a mountain of easy money after the 2008 financial crisis that made the growth of the shale industry possible. I think a lot of people learned a lesson as much as there was a huge, huge, huge amount of money that flowed in. There wasn't a lot of profits that flowed back out of the shale revolution. So are we going to see a return to what existed? Let's assume the coronavirus crisis just ends one day. Does that mean we go back to what there was before the coronavirus crisis? Or does it mean that the energy industry has a new starting point to try to recover from and very different financial dynamics that are going to constrain that recovery? Hi, it's Nate. I'll take a stab at that. I think we're going to have a brand new situation after this coronavirus credit situation is over. You mentioned the the shale companies accessing Wall Street capital. That's definitely true. But there's a larger story here. We, since the three of us have been alive, our culture has used credit kind of like a magic wand to pull resources, especially energy and consumption forward in time at a cost of a steeper future decline rate. And right now, we're aware of the legacy decline rate in global oil fields of you know five or six percent or something like that. That's a lot. And so we need to keep investing and keep producing. But the decline rate of monetary availability for people to spend is declining faster. So we're going to paradoxically have to use the big guns from the central banks of the world to mitigate this situation. But when this is over, what's going to happen is we're going to have spent more of our remaining bullets. And one of the core things that I, I, I don't think is being discussed enough is the main driver of the tepid recovery we had from the great financial crisis in 2009 was China massively using the debt productivity model where they would use six or seven dollars of, of credit creation to generate one new dollar of, of debt, a model that Western advanced economies had been using to a lesser extent up until then. And I don't think we get back to that. I don't think China is going to be able to print that amount of credit and have it believed internally. There's internal strife. The population is very upset with the CCP. And so my understanding is from 2009 until last year that 50% of the additional demand for global oil came from China. And I think that that's going away, or at least that magnitude is going away. So maybe you guys have some thoughts on that. Art, what's your take? Well, yeah, the, the world will, will be quite different when and if this is over. I, I want to go back, though, for just a second to talk about some of the things you described, Eric, and that, I mean, the, the assumption is that, you know, uh, easy money and, and uh, new technology, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's, a, there's another, another component that needs to be put in there. Those things are important, but price is the way that markets assess supply urgency, okay? And so the fact that oil price was above $90 a barrel in today's money for something like four years from 2011 to 2014 wasn't just because of monetary policy and easy money and, you know, blah, 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 blah. It was because markets were still freaking out about the fact that 
2005 to 2008, basically supply was flat. World supply was flat. And as Nate mentioned, you know, Chinese demand, other uh, developing world demand was going up and up and up. And so markets, and again, markets aren't anybody but all of us. I mean, there's no committee that's the market, but markets were saying, oh my God, we need to provide incentive through price to get more drilling done until the urgency about future supply feels a little bit more comfortable. And so, you know, that to me was, I mean, that was the signal for markets. It was an urgency issue. And once we got beyond that, and markets are sometimes late to recognize it, as we've described already, then prices cratered in, in 2014. So, you know, back to some of Nate's comments, I don't think that that markets are going to feel any kind of urgency for supply once this coronavirus thing is over. But, you know, back to my slide two, which we all agree is is just a it's a made up thing. But one way or another, like with coronavirus, like with the economic shutdown, probably the very worst of this thing is sometime in the first or the second quarter, that things do get better over time. And demand, while it may never go back to what it was in 2018, in fact, I I doubt it will, nor supply for that matter, it is going to come back. So I'll, I'll leave it there. Gentlemen, I'd like to move on now to the next chapter of this discussion in my mind, which is, look, we're going to get through this crisis one way or another. The thing is, and this is a a big topic that we're going to be talking about on the Macro Voices podcast over the next several episodes, is does this mean that the virus goes away and the economy goes back to the previous normal, or have we popped a bubble where the dynamics change and we get into a recession, which maybe the the virus was the catalyst to bring it about, but which carries forward for quite a while independent of the virus, which is my own base case. So I, I do have a certain amount of bias myself to this. I'd like to even expand the conversation farther than that, though, and talk about energy pricing dynamics as we go forward. There's been a lot of expectation in the market that, okay, you know, we, we sort of had this, uh, this situation previous to this crisis where energy prices were down a little bit. A lot of people thought they were going up. Where do we see the market really going in the longer term? And is there an economic dislocation, which even after the coronavirus crisis itself is over, continues and continues to affect the energy market well beyond the crisis itself. At this point, Nate Hagens, we're really getting into stuff that's right up your alley. So why don't you lead the conversation from here? Okay. So first of all, you know, I speak with confidence on these things, but when I say XYZ is going to happen, that just means XYZ is in the middle of my distribution. There are so many variables with what the government does, with geopolitically, with the credit availability, that, you know, I don't have huge certainty on, on many things in this space. But let's take a step back. So since we, the three of us have been alive, our society is swims in credit like a fish swims in water. And we faced these energy crises in the 1970s, and we solved them by going to debt and going to globalization. And that model hit its limits in 2008, and the central banks had to come in and take over the role of of commercial banks. And now we're hitting a different situation 
where the global central banks together may not be able to respond in the way they have in the past. So just think about this, the relationship between credit and energy. If in the 1970s we had a, a law, which would have been impossible, but that we wouldn't able to use debt. So then oil would have peaked 40 or 50 years ago, and we would have had a lot of it left. But every time we run into a crisis, we somehow manage to issue more debt and more credit, which allows us to consume more and more. So I'm pretty confident now, very confident that November 2018 will mark global peak oil. But paradoxically, since our monetary claims built up over the last 40 or 50 years are going to decline faster than our oil supply, that peak oil, unexpectedly to many in the peak oil tribe, is going to result in lower oil prices as opposed to higher. And I think we're going to be a wash in oil for the next five or seven years. And that will in turn spell a very nasty situation for the next 10 or 15 because we won't have invested as, as much in upstream capacity. So then we will have scarcity and, and other issues, you know, five to 15 years from now. But I think in the near term, we're not going to go back to easy credit, ubiquitous affordability. And so I think we're in a low price regime for many years to come. I don't know about $25. I, I, I'm not smart enough to know where, but I don't think we're going back to 80 to $100 oil anytime soon unless there's a geopolitical straight of Hormuz situation or something like that that no one can anticipate. Okay, I want to ask you to clarify the terminology of what you mean when you say November 2018. In other words, it already happened. Nate, you think that is the point at which we already reached peak oil production. Now, historically, when people have talked about peak oil before, what they were talking about is a point where we reach a peak of oil production that the world is incapable of producing anymore because of certain dynamics and the decline of oil fields and Hubbard's Peak and so forth that our listeners have heard about in previous Macro Voices episodes. The peak oil thesis was about it's impossible we're not able to produce any more than a certain amount. It sounds like you're saying we've reached the maximum point of production, but it's not because we're incapable of producing more. It's for some other reason. Is that correct? And if so, what's the other reason? It's a composite of those things. If we were able to continue credit like China has been doing the last few years, and if there was no coronavirus, we probably would have maybe surpassed the November 2018 with U.S. shale in the next couple of years, and then it would have started to decline. But now, because of the economic unaffordability, well, it's basically we've had a heart attack. Our economy is in the ICU right now, and the methods we're going to use to stabilize the patient are going to bring some of that demand back, but we won't get back to... 2019 levels. And every month that that takes place, every month it takes us to get back to an economic recovery, the real biophysical underlying depletion of machinery and the fields and all those aspects takes a toll and cements November 2018 as, as the global peak in, in production. And I, I'd like to say a, a few things too, that first of all, as someone who was in the middle, uh, Nate was too, of uh, the peak oil discussion, 
you know, I never, I never bought into the notion that, that peak oil was about, you know, producing half the oil in the world and then perpetual decline or that we were running out of oil. For me, peak oil, I go back to, you know, to Campbell and La Herrera's uh, 1990 Scientific American paper called The End of Cheap Oil. And so peak oil to me always meant when oil stopped being generally affordable. So, you know, saying that as a, as a former uh, history graduate before I went into geology, you know, there's a, there's a misperception about the rise and fall of, uh, of, of empires and, and great nations and great institutions in the world that we, we always look for, uh, you know, very clear uh, kind of causal reasons that, you know, the British Empire got overextended or the Roman Empire, you know, got invaded by, you know, Visigoths and, and whatever. But, but the truth is, is that the reason that great empires fail is because they run out of credit that nobody will lend them money anymore. And so the Spanish empire basically stopped growing because they weren't paying back their, their creditors. <laughs> and, uh, and the, and the, the people with money in Europe thought, well, you know, the Dutch are better at paying back the money. So let's give the money to the Dutch. And, and then it went to the British and then it went to the Americans and so on. And so the, what Nate is describing then is, you know, we, we've reached a point where there just isn't any more money. Uh, credit to give to oil producers and oil producing countries. And that is going to be, I think, the, you know, the, the, the scenario moving forward that we have to calibrate all this in terms of, you know, peak oil is, is a convenient way of talking about it, but it's, you know, it's, it's got to do with peak credit too, I suppose. Art, I, I, I have to disagree with one thing you said. It's not, it's only partially that credit won't be available to go to the oil producers and the oil producing countries. The bigger story is the credit will have limits to give to society, to all kinds of factories and businesses and consumers, which then will result in lower overall demand for transportation, goods and services, etc. Now, why do you think that that is true on a, a general macroeconomic basis? Because you could argue, hey, look at where the, the trend seems to be right now. Government, even before the coronavirus crisis, seemed to be very, very open to providing uh, a lot of quantitative easing, buying up government bonds. Now they're going to do quantitative easing to buy corporate bonds. Uh, I don't know if they're going to buy shale producer bonds at or even chunk ponds at some point. But it seems like there is a societal mood which favors central bank money being used to bail out financial markets, frankly. Uh, under those circumstances, why would you expect credit to dry up? That's an excellent question, and I think it depends on the time frame. I am, I expect, and I'm actually fervently hoping for, a successful amount of credit expansion that that stabilizes our economy in the coming months, which then buys us a few years to make wiser, longer-term decisions, investments, even aspirations. But if we're sitting at 320% global credit to GDP, and now we've got this economic depression, which I argue is going to be a 15 to 20% drop in GDP this year, First of all, our debt to GDP numbers just spike up because GDP went down. And second of all, they're going to spike up because we're going to have to have a scorched earth, all guns on deck policy of bailing out everything. 
And so that means we're going to have a higher debt to GDP ratio globally. And places like Japan have already have this zombified economy where if you, you know, a lot of companies can't meet their EBITDA unless they have government support, that's coming to the United States and it's coming to Europe. So the limitations of how much credit we can use in 2023 and 2025, if we come out of this depression and have a recovery, we're going to have fewer options available the next time around. Okay, I want to come back, Nate, to your projections about November 18 being peak oil production. I'm assuming, first of all, that a principal reason that you think that would have been the peak is because for some reason you don't see the U.S. shale production recovering to where, you know, we had a previous record print of 13.1 million barrels per day of U.S. production. It sounds like it's the U.S. that you think is not going to 14 or 15 million barrels. Is that because of credit? Is it because of other economic conditions? Or is it because of the geology of shale oil production kind of being played out by some metrics? Well, like you mentioned earlier, the uh, technologies existed for a long time. So people just extrapolate recent production uh, forward in time when the reality is the same amount of oil was there. We've just used a three times bigger straw to suck it out. So the decline rates are accelerating, especially after we've used uh, the sweet spots in, in the Permian and, and other places. So I don't, I mean, Art can comment on the exact production levels in the different shale basins, but I think this credit crisis will accelerate the decline rates in U.S. oil production, which I don't think we will have the socioeconomic situation to get back to all the complexity, drilling, employment, et cetera, that we did last year. So it's, it's a combination of the geological depletion, which is ongoing, coupled with this economic crisis is going to kind of cement that date in my opinion. I don't know, Art, what do you think about November 2018? I think it's a pretty good number, Nate. And and I, I'll, I'll say also that just a personal commentary, I mean, I've been sort of trying to point out to people that all the shale production is at best a marginal business for years and years. And everybody's been throwing tomatoes at me saying, you don't know what you're talking about. You're totally wrong. And today, I actually find myself often on the other side of that conversation that, that the mood has turned so abruptly to say, oh, these guys never made any money and, you know, and, and it was just all a, a Ponzi scheme or, you know, some sort of a, you know, a head fake. And uh, these guys are all going down the toilet and shale production is going to drop off the map. And I'm saying, wait a minute, guys, you know, no, <laughs> that's not happening either. So, but to your point, there's an awful lot of discussion about how all the so-called tier one areas have now been drilled up. And, and to the best of my ability, I'm unable to find anybody who will show me a map of what tier one is, or even really define what it is. My sense is, is that if you're talking about, you know, the Eagle Ford or the Bakken, uh, those statements are probably more or less correct, that it's unlikely that there is going to be another you know, a couple of years or five years of, of production growth in those basins if money weren't an issue. Permian, I think, is another story. There's still plenty of, of, of good positions to drill in some of the plays in the Permian uh, that, you know, somehow people just don't want to, you know, to somehow acknowledge or, or recognize. But, you know, I, I think that the, the bigger issue as far as, as shale goes is ultimately – 
it's strategic and it's security. I mean, I think that Trump's involvement at this point is because, uh, gee, energy dominance is, is his thing. And, um, if, if we lose the economy and we lose energy dominance, you know, I guess he can go build more walls or something like that. But, you know, it takes an awful lot of the, the substance out of, out of his playbook. So to, to just summarize, I, I think the consolidation in the shale patch, it, it's been happening. It's been inevitable probably ever since it began. And of course, the entrance of, uh, you know, some of the bigger players, notably Chevron and Exxon, even though they've, they've been in it all along, but they've increasingly gone to those, those plays for their balance sheets and their reserve replacement. You know, I, I think it's, it's, it's very reasonable that many of the names are going to disappear from the shale patch. I, I don't see any way around that. But at the same time, I, I, I just have a very hard time imagining that. 55% of U.S. oil production is just going to somehow go away. The geology is against it, but the geology is against everything that isn't a gawar or, you know, or something like that. Art, this is, uh, th- there's a deep story here, and Eric, maybe this is a topic uh, for another day, but you just mentioned that shale companies aren't profitable but the oil they produce makes society more profitable because of the multiplier effect of what energy does in our world. Uh, one barrel of oil does four and a half years of my physical labor, which could be measured in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. So if they produce at a monetary loss, society is still producing a lot of benefits from, from the oil. Not only that, but as U.S. shale producers they have all the employees and the trucks and the rigs and, and everything else. So all that is adding to U.S. GDP instead of us importing that from other countries. But here's the broader context. I wrote my Ph.D. on net energy, which is measuring our energy and resources, not in dollar terms, but in energy and natural resource terms. We finished a seven-century decline of going from energy being 80 to 100% of our economic output to 1999, it hit a low of 5%. Energy was only 5% of the cost of our economies. And now we're at 8 or 10% trending higher. So the question isn't so much, did the shale company produce at a loss, but this declining net energy, we've used the best stuff. Now we're in the middle and uh, there's a lot left, but it's going to be more costly and energy dollar, environmental terms, et cetera, it's going to be vital to our economic interest to properly invest in U.S. energy resources. So this, this does that shale company make money is going to be a really central question that a lot of decisions are going to have to be made around in, in the coming decade. And a final comment has to do with putting things back together. And so if we lived in a perfect world, where the economy wasn't in the ICU and uh, you know, we could go back to printing money and everybody was happy again once the coronavirus goes away. The harsh reality is that, is that the companies that, that do the, the fracking, that do the pressure pumping, those frack spreads, as they're called, the frack crews, those have been declining at the speed of light since sometime almost a year ago. And, and you don't just resurrect 
all of that equipment, which is now, you know, some, you know, stored and rotting or they're, you know, they're cannibalizing parts. You don't just bring good crews back into the business. So in the best of all possible worlds, you cannot go back to the levels that you were at in late 2018 because you just don't have the people and the equipment to do it. Now that is certainly rebuildable, if you will, but it does take considerable time and investment. Gentlemen, I want to return to what Nate said earlier about long-term outlook for oil prices, because there's a few things I didn't understand there. I think something we can all agree on is the shale boom, uh, the U.S. shale boom of the last decade will come to an end. Now, how it comes to an end is unclear. Do we get to the point where we cannot recover because credit's not available from here after this coronavirus crisis? Or do we fully recover because credit was available, but get to the point where eventually those decline economics, where the, the shale patch just is not, you know, the sweet spots have all been used up and decline rates are too high and the economics just aren't there to support it and it's not profitable. Do we go up first? before we come down. I don't know. You don't know. We don't know. But one way or another, in the next few years, this shale boom of massive U.S. shale production has to come to an end for one reason or another. Now, that would be the point where I would have said, okay, that's a setup for a moonshot much higher in prices because what's happened is OPEC used to be able to maintain a pricing cartel. We've gotten to the point where the U.S. is producing more than Saudi Arabia, and that's forced Saudi Arabia to say, wait a minute, we, we can't be you know, shooting ourselves in the foot by dramatically cutting our production as swing producer and having the shale guys make up for it. We're not going to do that anymore. We're, we're not really able to, to play that swing producer role that we used to. I would have said, Nate, that once U.S. shale peters out one way or another, whether it's credit-driven or geology-driven or, or what have you, at that point, OPEC regains its strength in pricing, and perhaps they need to get Russia on board to do that, but there's certainly room for that. Russia and OPEC create this OPEC plus cartel, which can then take oil prices much, much higher once that wild card of U.S. shale is eliminated. You're saying the opposite. You're saying it doesn't go higher, it goes lower after that. Help me understand. Well, like you prefaced, no one knows what's going to happen with the shape of this recovery. I think the three of us agree that a V-shaped recovery is almost impossible unless some miracle vaccine comes out. Yes, what I'm saying is that every time we have an economic crisis, and the, the topic we haven't broached yet is the social inequality and the fact that 50 or 60 percent of Americans have virtually nothing. So right now they're seeing a dollar twenty-five gasoline, and they're not even caring about it because they can't spend any money or go anywhere. But every crisis that we have, a hundred and fifty-dollar oil, a hundred-dollar oil, eighty-dollar oil become less and less affordable to the world population. So I'm arguing that the uh, ability to spend in the next five years is going to decline faster than U.S. oil shale production. And therefore, we might go back, if the economy recovers, we might go back to 50 or $60. But even after oil peaks and shale oil declines, I think the economic recession that we're going to be in is going to outweigh the lack of oil production for a while. And, and then, you know, over time, then we have other issues. But that's my view of the next five or seven years. Art Berman, your reactions? 
Yeah, I agree with that completely. And if you go back to my slide number eight, what it shows is that the, the, the yield curves, the sense of supply urgency that the market anticipates have been flattening ever since 2014. And I'm not sure that, that the dashed green line, which is the latest, is, is at all correct. It could be much, much flatter than that. But, but to what Nate just said and what he said earlier, Absolutely, I don't see oil going back to seventy, eighty, ninety dollars. Uh, other than you know, through some sort of a geopolitical spike. What what this chart says is that we can take inventory to almost any level of uh, you know any low level that you want, and you're still never going to get above sixty dollars a barrel. And conversely, we can take it almost as high as you want. And on a sustained basis, you're probably not going to be able to keep it at much lower than about $40 a barrel. So, you know, this is not, this is not a law. This is not an axiom, but it's, it's a lot of established, uh, empirical data. So probably what will happen is things will get flatter, but no, I, I think we're, I think we're in, you know, we, we need to be looking at 50 as, as, as sort of the peak going forward, at least for a while. Gentlemen, this has already been a fairly long podcast. I wish we could go on for another several hours, frankly, because we're only scratching the surface of Nate Hagen's research on this. Nate, you really focus on the big picture of how energy and credit and social cycles and everything else come together. Listeners, I strongly recommend that you check out a video we have linked in the description of today's podcast. It's about an hour-long video by Nate talking about the summary of his work. Nate, give us a quick teaser of what listeners can expect to find when they watch that video. Our culture rewards expertise and reductionist expertise, and I've spent the last 15 years looking at the systems overview So I have a generalist view of how human behavior, energy, economy, money, the environment, the future all fit together, and it does fit together. But you have to look at all those components. And the the short version is that as a social species, we have been cooperating with groups of people, with corporations, with nation states to access surplus measured in energy terms uh, since the agricultural revolution. And every time we run into a problem, we kick the can forward using rule changes or credit or whatever. And so we have this pending date with the question of can we continue to grow the global economy? And energy is at the center of that question. And human behavior individually and in aggregate is part of it as well. And I think we have to really have this systems conversation to inform our decisions and our future. And I kind of explained that in that video called The Human Predicament. And again, listeners, that is linked in the description of today's podcast on our homepage at macrovoices.com. You'll see that next to Nate and Art's picture on the homepage. Art, I I know that our regular Macro Voices listeners already know that the no-brainer action every investor should take is to sign up for your free blog at artberman.com. But you've also added a subscription service for people who want to go a little bit deeper. Tell us a little bit more about that, what's on offer, and where they can find out more about it. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Right up front on on my webpage, there's a, a button for subscription. And what I offer 
are a series of low-cost packages, one that includes a monthly newsletter, another that includes my analysis of compared inventory, and a third that has a weekly update on rig count. And then there are, are premium packages for people that actually want it in detail, more more regular discussions and analysis. So, you know, all of those things together, you know, the basic packages, I think together you can get them all for, you know, about 250 bucks. And, and we've got people that are, that are, you know, actively taking us up on that. And for those that are more serious investors and actually want to get detailed PowerPoint presentations and conversations with me, it's a little bit more, but hopefully it's all pretty affordable. That's at artberman.com. Okay, and again, that URL is artberman.com. We're going to have to leave it there. Gentlemen, I want to thank both of you. We look forward to getting you both back onto the program in the future for another update. For the Macro Voices Podcast Network, I'm Eric Townsend. That concludes this edition of Macro Voices. Be sure to tune in each week to hear feature interviews with the brightest minds in finance and macroeconomics. Please register your free account at macrovoices.com. Once registered, you'll receive our free weekly research roundup email containing links to supporting documents from our featured guests and the very best free financial content our volunteer research team could find on the internet each week. You'll also gain access to our free research library. And the more registered users we have, the more we'll be able to recruit high-profile feature interview guests for future programs. So please register your free account today at macrovoices.com if you haven't already. You can subscribe to Macro Voices on iTunes to have Macro Voices automatically delivered to your mobile device each week free of charge. Macro Voices is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Macro Voices should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Macro Voices are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Macro Voices, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Macro Voices.